Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part two of an ongoing series with a journalist and author whose controversial book makes startling claims about the Bush political dynasty. Reagan gets shot, and he's shot by this fellow John Hinckley. John Hinckley coming from Midland, Texas, the same town where Poppy Bush was, and then we find out doing some research that the two families knew each other, even were friendly, even shared a lawyer in common. It turns out that the day after the shooting, Neil Bush, the son of uh, George H.W. Bush, was to have dinner with John Hinckley's brother. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, crime and trauma scene cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. Call them at 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. I hope my American friends had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. And my thoughts are never far from veterans, those who served, those who are serving, those who made the ultimate sacrifice, and of course, the families of those fallen soldiers. I believe I've mentioned my late father served in the Second World War. He was a tank gunner with the Fort Gary Horse Regiment, which was out of Winnipeg, and he helped liberate Holland. Of course, we're fast approaching the 75th anniversary of Operation Overlord, D-Day. My father missed D-Day. Had he not twisted his ankle in a training exercise about a week prior, he would have taken part in the operation, and who knows, maybe he wouldn't have survived. So were it not for a simple twist of fate, a twisted ankle, I might not be here. My children might not be here. Amazing when you think how everything, even the smallest things, are interconnected. A few months ago, journalist Russ Baker from whowhatwhy.org joined me on this podcast to discuss his book, Family of Secrets, which is about the Bush political dynasty. We talked about Prescott Bush and George Herbert Walker Bush. Well, Russ returns on this episode for part two of what will be an ongoing series. Russ is an award-winning investigative journalist who's written for major news organizations around the world, including The New York Times, Vanity Fair, and Esquire. He's been a contributing editor to the Columbia Journalism Review. He's the author of a best-selling work of investigative history, Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years. He is founder and co-editor-in-chief of the groundbreaking news site, whowhatwhy.org. 
which specializes in digging into the stories that conventional media barely touches and in seeking answers to the question, why? Russ Baker, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Thank you. Good to be here. Just uh, spend a few moments and tell us again uh, a little bit about whowhatwhy.org. Sure. Who, what, why is a nonprofit, uh, publicly supported news organization dedicated to doing serious journalism without a partisan slant and with serious intent to figure out how things work, what's going on, and why. When last we spoke, uh, we were talking about uh, the, the Bush family dynasty. And uh, your book, of course, Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years. And uh, for those interested who, who didn't hear part one, they should probably listen to episode 169 and uh, before maybe listening to this one. We, we, uh, we talked about uh, Poppy Bush up until about, uh, I guess, 1980 and his appearance on the uh, the Reagan ticket. And I'm going to just backtrack a little bit. There'll be a little overlap here, but just tell us once again, how did uh, Bush manage to get on the Reagan ticket? You know, the real story of that is as much of a mystery as how Lyndon Johnson ended up being JFK's running mate. In both cases, they were taking on someone that really they shouldn't have trusted. It was very, very risky because these were highly, highly ambitious men who had just been their opponent. Now, you could say, well, sure, somebody runs for office and uh, they bring the party together by taking on somebody they ran against, and, and that makes some sense, but it depends who you take because, of course, you do not want to have a, a viper uh, inside your operation. And, um, you know, the thing with LBJ was that uh, he was a ruthless guy. Uh, you could just read traditional accounts like uh, Robert Caro's very in-depth work to see exactly how vicious and really criminal he was. Uh, and in the case of George H.W. Bush, uh, he had a veneer, he had an external appearance of being this courtly gentleman, a very uh, kind of mild-mannered and uh, aristocratic fellow, but in fact he was quite something different entirely, and my book Family of Secrets is that exploration of the other side of him and of that family dynasty and what they were really like, who they were really working with, and what they were willing to do to gain and keep power. And so, uh, so when Bush was put on the ticket with Reagan, uh, not only was he put on the ticket, but Reagan uh, essentially jettisoned his own uh, campaign chair and brought on James Baker, who was Bush's guy. Uh, now, Reagan had beaten Bush. It's unusual that you'd get rid of your person, you'd take Bush's person, but he did, and he took Bush. Uh, and uh, Bush was enormously ambitious. He had wanted to be president for a long time, actually since he was quite young. Um, and even back in 1968, so you're talking about 1980, but going all the way back to 1968, there had been a campaign to put Bush on the ticket with Richard Nixon as vice president. Bush was almost completely unknown. He had 
a term in the House of Representatives, um, and uh, was was not a major figure by any means, but there was this concerted effort. And I've seen the letters from the lobbying campaign, bunch of big corporations, banks, and so forth, connected with his father, Senator Prescott Bush, and with the family interests, were pressing Nixon to take uh, nicknamed Poppy, Poppy Bush, as his running mate, and Nixon wouldn't do it. Uh, and uh, it was incredible that he resisted because the pressure was so intense. But as he later told one of his top aides, uh, he felt that it was risky to take somebody who was that ambitious, and instead he swallowed a poison pill and he took the very unlikable and corrupt Spiro Agnew. And when they asked him why he did it, he replied, assassination insurance. <laughs> so even even in 60, uh, 68, the, 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 it was known that, that Bush was involved in the Kennedy assassination. Well, I, I, let's put it this way. I, I don't want to say that he was involved. I mean, in my book, Family of Secrets, I have five chapters on the odd doings of Mr. Bush in uh, Dallas and on November 22, 1963, and immediately thereafter. The people he was working with, associated with, meeting with, who do appear to have been part of a kind of an intelligence agency tinged operation around whatever happened that day with connections to Lee Harvey Oswald and to the subsequent cover-up. But what's interesting is that Richard Nixon, uh, as I I go into in Family of Secrets, some detail, I spent a long time trying to figure out why Richard Nixon gave George H.W., nicknamed Poppy Bush, all of these opportunities. He kept giving him these positions. Uh, He uh, he would not take him as his running mate, but he made him his United Nations ambassador. Uh, they sent him to China as the first envoy. A whole bunch of unusual opportunities. They made him the chairman of the Republican National Committee. Again, he was not well known. All of these tremendous opportunities for a young man. And the question was, why had Nixon done that? And the more I dug, the more I discovered that there was a back history between Richard Nixon and the Bush family. And this went all the way back to 1946, when Nixon was drafted by some powerful folks to run for Congress. And they put him up against a fellow named Jerry Voorhees. Jerry Voorhees was a moderate liberal Democrat from the greater Los Angeles area. And what was interesting about Jerry Voorhees was that he was going after the Wall Street interests. And I don't know that there's anybody in Congress today who really would equate with him, but he was really going after them. He was holding hearings. Uh, he was holding their feet to the fire. He, this was in the aftermath of, you know, still the consequences of the Great Depression. And he was uh, pushing for strong uh, regulatory relief for the people who held the uh, bank accounts and so forth, and uh, this was, of course, uh, uh, FDR, and then uh, the Glass-Steagall Act, uh, manda- mandating all kinds of limitations on the activities of financial concerns and the consolidation, uh, the requirements for financial reserves, all of the things that protect the public and protect right. the 
ordinary person and the investor that that Wall Street did not want. And frankly, they wanted uh, Jerry Voorhees out. And so what they did was they found this young man, Richard Nixon, and they convinced him. It wasn't that hard to convince him. They said, we want you to run for Congress. They got behind him. They were. It was hidden what they did. And to this day, this is not in any of the books about Nixon. None of the major books reveal this, that it was these special interests that were behind the creation of Richard Nixon. And they basically owned him uh, all the way through, and he was beholden to them. He wouldn't take Bush as his vice president because he worried about him, but he did take him for all these other things. Now, in 1963, very interestingly, in Dallas, uh, the day that Kennedy was shot, you have the following people. You have Kennedy there, you have Johnson there, you have uh, uh, you have um, uh, uh, so so the, this is a president the neck his replacement the next president uh, and then you have uh, Richard Nixon there and this is very interesting what's Richard Nixon doing there Richard Nixon has been asked to come to Dallas for a supposedly unrelated event for the uh, soda pop bottlers industry <laughs> and he's asked to go there by a fellow named Donald Kendall who is the head of Pepsi. Uh, Pepsi identified as having close connections to the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, particularly in their foreign operations, and also uh, giving franchises to all manner of uh, wealthy interests in other countries that were playing ball with, uh, uh, with U.S. corporate interests and with the CIA. And so he, uh, uh, he got Nixon on his board, and then he sent Nixon out there. He said, you go to Dallas and you be there this week, uh, of November 19, uh, and he went out there and he was there, and he was there the morning uh, that Nixon was shot. Uh, and then it turns out a fourth person who had become President of the United States, George H.W. Bush, was also in Dallas at the time, although he covered up the fact that he was there, and I got a whole section in Family of Secrets about how he covers this up and tries to make it look like he was not there, which is very, very interesting, and that he was actually associating with and meeting with some very powerful and very dangerous CIA people who had left the CIA uh, when Nixon began, oh, sorry, when, when Kennedy began a purge of the agency after the Bay of Pigs. So you have all this entanglement there. There's Richard Nixon. He's there when the man who barely beat him in 1960 is shot. He is on a plane that morning, and he's stricken. He is mortified to discover that he was there when this man was shot. <laughs> and uh, I don't think he knew that was coming, but I think other people knew they were coming, and they wanted to put him there and put him in a difficult spot so that uh, he understood the consequences of not uh, playing ball with the big boys. Right. You have to be blackmailable to uh, to be in the Oval Office, I guess. Uh, another, just to digress a little bit, because I wanted to get back to Reagan, but uh, you draw another interesting connection between uh, uh, Bush and the Kennedy assassination, and that was his, was it his roommate at Yale? Was the nephew of... Um, uh, d- d- um, uh, now who George was it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what happened was uh, that wasn't even at Yale. That was at prep school. Uh, Bush roomed with a fellow uh, named Roland Hooker, and he was from a very wealthy old American family going back to the colonial days. And Hooker's mother married a what's called a white Russian. These are uh, wealthy Russian emigres who left during the. Uh, Bolshevik Revolution, and and the mother had married this fellow, 
uh, who went by Von Morenschild, and Von Morenschild had a brother who went by De Morenschild. His name was George De Morenschild. And so George De Morenschild um, spent some time, even lived with his brother and the mother, and got to know, of course, the son, uh, Roland Hooker, but also got to know the roommate, uh, Poppy Bush, who would come and visit and stay with them and so on. And many years later, we learned that George de Morenschild was spent about half of the year 1963 uh, and part of 1962 squiring around a fellow by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. And so this is just another piece of this puzzle that uh, that Poppy Bush, who would go on to become president, who hid the fact that he was there at Dallas that day, had a years, a, a lifelong relationship with George de Morenschild, who we can consider effectively to have been some kind of a manager or handler of Lee Harvey Oswald, very close with him, guiding him, introducing him to people, arranging jobs for him, all of these interesting things. George de Morenschild and his wife, were interviewed by the Warren Commission for more, I believe they spent more time on the stand than anybody else. Uh, although, when you read the transcripts of the Warren Commission, it's the most staggering thing because it's like basketball players trying to run out the clock. They have him there, but they don't want to know anything. And they ask him the most idiotic and, and really almost hysterically laughable questions. Even George de Morenschild, who is sort of, you know, trying not to say anything that is going to get him or anybody in any trouble, still is saying some pretty darn interesting things. And every time he says anything interesting about any sort of powerful person, they immediately change the subject to something very sort of banal. And I remember at one point, he says something really quite interesting. Uh, and the Warren Commission guy then immediately says, you're a tall, good-looking fellow with a nice tan. Uh, how, how tall are you or something? And, <laughs> and DeVore and reply something like, wow, I, I, I really never expected such questions. Wow. Now, Jack Ruby was also a white Russian, wasn't he? Uh, he was not a white Russian. Huh. The white Russians were... Uh, were uh, Christians. Jack Ruby was Jewish. Uh, his family came from uh, from the former, you know, Soviet Union. At some point, they had emigrated. The name was Rubenstein, but that definitely the uh, there was a lot of discrimination against Jews uh, in the former Soviet right, Union. For sure, for sure. But an interesting connection, <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah. Now, um, some of which we 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 covered in episode one sixty nine. So let's come back to uh, to Bush and Reagan for a minute. And you were mentioning you were trying to figure, you know, why would he bring him on the ticket? And of course, there was some rationale for for Kennedy taking LBJ. I guess because he needed Texas, right, to win to win the uh, the election. Uh, was it because Reagan was maybe perceived as a uh, an outsider and unpredictable and he needed he may he maybe he needed a handler and so that bush was foisted on him well i think that's the case uh also bush was at that point from texas uh and texas is an important state uh and uh bush also uh had uh and has relatives and connections around the country that were going to be very helpful uh and also i think frankly i think bush made reagan look good uh, you know, Reagan was just a, a charismatic, 
fellow uh, master orator and so forth. And I think there was a striking contrast that he liked. I, there were presumably some reasons. I still find it quite strange because there were many other options that Reagan had. And, and as I say, the fact that Reagan took James Baker on to replace his own uh, manager, I thought was very suspicious. But in any case, he did that. And the reason that uh, we find this so interesting, as they say, is that w we look at what happened to uh, to Kennedy and the fact that many people believe that Johnson was witting to what took place. There is a lot of evidence uh, of that. I've got some of that in Family of Secrets. I'll have a lot more of that in my next book, which is about the Kennedy assassination solely. Uh, but in any case, uh, with Bush's, with what, what, with what uh, they knew about Bush and his ties uh, to the CIA, it is interesting that he took him. It's much more interesting, of course, and I don't want to step on your uh, parade here in case this was something you wanted to bring up, but what happened shortly after Reagan yes. came into office. <laughs> My next question. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, because because Hinckley, had his, the gunman, had ties to the Bush family. Well, yeah, let me let me set that one up. So so Reagan comes into office. He's inaugurated in January, and and I'd have to look at the dates again. It's been a while, but I want to say within a month and a half, six weeks, something like that, of Reagan taking office. And by the way, Bush, as I said, had wanted to be president for a long time, uh, all the way back from you know the late '60s, and here it was 1980, and he wasn't going to be president again. And now he was going to have to wait eight more years. Uh, for Reagan to finish up his term. And history shows us that vice presidents don't necessarily become president. And of course, since he was so much less charismatic than Reagan, his likelihood of winning office outright was, was slim. Uh, and so then you see that Reagan gets shot, and he's shot by this fellow, John Hinckley. John Hinckley coming from uh, Midland, Texas, the same town where Poppy Bush was. And then we find out, doing some research, that the two families knew each other, even were friendly, even shared a lawyer in common. Uh, and, and I don't know if this is most interesting of all, but it's certainly interesting that it turns out that uh, the day after the shooting, there was a dinner scheduled to take place, and it was Neil Bush, uh, the son of uh, George H.W. Bush, was to have dinner with John Hinckley's brother. Hmm. And, he, of course, that was canceled. But you can imagine when this odd item, one out of some trillions <laughs> a likelihood, uh, maybe even higher than trillions, whatever that is, <laughs> uh, that uh, it, it, it was so weird and improbable, it was actually reported, uh, this item, uh, by a wire service, and it was on at least one of the networks on the evening news, uh, but then it vanished. It vanished. Uh, it was maybe in an early edition of a newspaper and so on, and it just vanished. They all cut it out. And I understand why they cut it out, because it's so creepy and it's so weird, and it gets into that dreaded, you know, so-called conspiracy area that uh, you, you may not go into and keep your job, and so they just stopped talking about it, and they never discussed it. Again, it's not in any books. And I have to tell you that with my book, Family of Secrets, it's so full of explosive stuff uh, that somebody at my publishing company basically said, please do not put that in there. Your really? book is already just totally radioactive. So did you have to have that lawyered considerably, I'm guessing? <laughs> 
Well, it wasn't a matter of it being lawyered. It was just a strategic decision that, you know, when you reveal these kinds of facts, and they are facts, I mean, it's just a fact, uh, that uh, the you need for a book to be successful, commercially successful, you need to get on shows, you need uh, big newspaper and magazine book reviewers to review your book positively and so on. And the second you put that kind of stuff in there, you there's a, there's a, 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 a curtain of silence that comes down. And, and that happened to my book, even without the Hinckley stuff. Uh, all these people wanted me on their shows, and then some higher-ups said, yeah, you know, this stuff is just... It's just very edgy. It's very explosive, and they they canceled me. And I think the Hinckley thing would have definitely guaranteed that that uh, that did not see the light of day. Was there a continuity of government drill going on that day, as there so often seems to be whenever tragedy strikes? There was continuity of government. I mean, it it makes sense. I think any organization, any well-run organization, has some sort of plan what happens in an emergency. And so there is something called cog continuity of government, and it is a, uh, a preparation for what to do uh, when some, some disaster strikes. And so they have a, not only the sequence of what happens when a president is incapacitated, who takes over, what do you do with the nuclear football, and so on, but there are actually all these alternative systems, including command centers. There are backup uh, communications channels. There is a uh, there is a, a sort of a sci-fi like command center uh, uh, inside and beneath a mountain, a hardened location where uh, all these people and all this equipment and these generals and so on basically uh, hearken to, uh, and then they run things on this alternative grid. Uh, we do know, or we've been told that uh, George H. W. Bush was immediately plugged into this whole thing uh, the second that um, that Reagan was shot. And there are a whole lot of interesting things that took place and sort of strange orders and so forth uh, that make one wonder whether, again, more, you know, whether some people knew that something was going to happen and were planning to use this as some sort of an opportunity. A coup, or some in other kind words. A of coup. A, Well, yeah, you know, whether it was a coup or what it was, I mean, these are tricky situations. You may remember the whole issue about uh, about uh, who said that they were in charge. Alexander right? Haig. Haig. Right, and he said, I'm in charge. Right. And people ridiculed him for saying that, although technically he was in charge because he was in Washington and Bush was not. But there was a lot of stuff, I think, going on behind the scenes. I think there probably was some kind of a power struggle. Uh, I think that Haig and Bush were in different factions. And in Family of Secrets, I do get into that somewhat, uh, that there were these different factions within the you know, if you want to use the term the deep state, there were different factions sort of battling for power. And and I think some of that probably was in play in that period where Reagan was out of the picture. Hang tight. I'll be back with more of my conversation with journalist Russ Baker as we continue to discuss the life and times of Bush 41 right here on Conspiracy Unlimited. 
This morning, I tore open a pouch of Formula 13 pomegranate herbal tea from GetTheTea.com. What an amazing fragrance. Just the sweet smell of pomegranate, it made me feel so happy. I dropped two bags into two cups of boiling water. Now I wait about six to eight hours for it to steep. From these two cups, I'll make about two gallons of herbal tea. Then I pop them into the fridge and that'll do me for the whole week. Then I start every morning with an eight ounce glass of this amazing, life-changing, organic, caffeine-free herbal tea. Every single day, I'm doing a gentle colon cleanse, cleaning my body from the inside. A clean and healthy colon and digestive system is so important to maintaining vitality, a clear mind, and an overall sense of well-being. I can't say enough about this Formula 13 pomegranate from GetTheTea.com. Formula 13 also comes in peppermint. Why not join me on this journey to great health and happiness? Formula 13 pomegranate, non-GMO, caffeine-free herbal tea. Order today from GetTheTea.com. Use the code UNLIMITED and shipping is free on your first purchase. Formula 13 tea and life change tea available only at getthetea.com. If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Journalist Russ Baker from whowhatwhy.org is here discussing Family of Secrets, the Bush Dynasty. Iran-Contra, a huge scandal in the 1980s. This was ostensibly about illegal arms sales to Iran. The proceeds were then funneled into funding the Contra rebels who were fighting the communist Sandinistas in Nicaragua to bypass Congress. Now, Bush has always said that he was sort of excluded from the decision-making process. He was on the outside, sort of looking in. He really had no knowledge. Uh, I think there was that famous quote from him about, I'm leveling with the American people. Uh, What did you uncover? What was Bush's role in Iran-Contra, and what was that really all about? Well, you know, a lot of these things we may never know what they were really about. Certainly, uh, it is said that what that was really about was a desire to battle a leftist and maybe communist forces in Latin America, and that certainly the uh, some elements saw the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua as a real threat. They wanted to make sure that it did not succeed. They were seeking to fund this army, opposition army, that the U.S. basically constituted, the so-called Contras, and uh, Congress voted uh, to forbid any... Uh, aid to the Contras, and so they were going to go ahead and do it anyway, and the way that they cooked up was to raise money some other way, and that was this back channel of selling these weapons to the hated uh, Iranian regime, uh, and then use the cash for the Contras, and so that is ostensibly what that's about. There's a whole lot of backstory about the Lebanese hostage thing, uh, what that was really about, and there, uh, we can't go into it all now. It's very, very complicated, but there are many, many questions about whether there were a whole multiplicity of subplots taking place. But in any case, uh, 
the this was a super high priority for the CIA. Uh, and Bush, of course, having been CIA director, and as I reveal in Family of Secrets, actually having been a secret, super secret CIA asset for years, for decades, before he was appointed as a so-called outside novice a CIA director, that he was deeply wired into the agency, uh, an important asset, very well connected into the actual leadership uh, that, that really kind of runs the consensus and uh, institutional memory of the CIA, that he was part of all that. And so the probability that this man, who had been CIA director, that when they're doing this giant covert operation, that he would not be read into it, would not be part of it, would not be very enthusiastic about it, is almost zero. Uh, and we also know, and I've got this anecdote in Family of Secrets, that he uh, was, uh, there was a, a party at the Admiralty, the home of the Vice President, and that was his home, and he was there, uh, and he was standing with his son, George W. Bush, and they're standing on the steps, and uh, I interviewed a man who worked for Bush who was standing right behind them. And at that moment, he said that uh, the door opened and people came into the party and a man came in and he, uh, his, his chest was emblazoned with all these military medals. And uh, uh, Bush pointed at him and said in a voice loud enough for the man behind them to hear, he said to his son, that's the guy I was telling you about. That's him. And... <laughs> Uh, sometime later, uh, this man who worked for Bush saw the man on TV, and it was Oliver North. Mm -hmm. uh, and Oliver North was, of course, was the man in the White House who was running this whole operation. Uh, and it, by all appearances, Reagan is the one who was not particularly engaged with that or arguably with anything. And Bush was running most of the uh, national security operations for the White House. So I think it's almost certain that he was deeply enmeshed in this But but, and this is very important, he had learned at a young age he had been reprimanded for being indiscreet. And they told him you should never put anything important in writing. And I think that in his decades at the CIA, that served him very well. Uh, he ended up having a problem uh, because, uh, as I explained in Family of Secrets, several uh, FBI, not CIA, but FBI documents uh, were uh, made public at some point about the Kennedy assassination, and his name was in there uh, in relation to the Kennedy assassination, in relation to the CIA, and of course, this is the exact kind of thing he was hoping would never happen. He was able to control it on the CIA side, not on the FBI side, but I think he understood that when you're in meetings, uh, when you're talking to people, they can write it down, too. And so he played it safe, and if he went to these meetings, he literally didn't say a word. Hmm. <laughs> he sat there and didn't say a <laughs> word, and I, I don't know if he scribbled notes that he showed to people or people there just knew to represent him. I don't know how they do that, but there he was without a trace. A wink and a nod. Yep. Interesting, the parallels, uh, uh, as you're talking about, you know, Bush, Probably, you know, being very heavily involved in Iran Contra, uh, and and Reagan being the one really left in the dark. Uh, the parallels to the 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 national security state that that Kennedy wandered into like a sacrificial lamb, uh, and and then stumbles onto this Bay of Pigs operation and said, "No, I'm not providing air cover. We can't have." U.S. fingerprints on this operation. I mean, the difference, obviously, there was Reagan perhaps chose to be uh, to be you know willfully ignorant, but 
again, not much really has changed in the way uh, that the government was run. It really is and was a national security state. Right, exactly. And, and you know, uh, that is the way it was. That is the way it is. There were some moments, I think, when a, a Franklin Roosevelt uh, probably had much more situational awareness and really was able to rein things in and do things. Of course, that's before the National Security Act of 1947, which was uh, the, the product of a group of people, including Robert Lovett, an investment banking partner of the Bushes. Uh, that was the group that basically created the modern national security state, and it's never really been a viable democracy since then. I mean, whether it's, uh, it was Kennedy who tried to resist them, or Carter who tried to resist them, or people like uh, Nixon, who, believe it or not, and I reveal this in Family Secrets, tried to resist them, or Barack Obama, who a little bit tried to resist them at the beginning of his term and quickly was sent a bunch of messages, a few shots across the bow, and he was quickly made to understand this is above your pay grade. And, and I think that that's basically almost always the case now, the way in which they're presented options, uh, who it is who's presenting them the options, the way in which those things are skewed, uh, the way their hand is forced uh, by often, uh, at least the attempt at engineering events, uh, this really limits them. And I'm sure the public doesn't understand this fully. The media doesn't seem to either understand it or care or to be willing to talk about it. And so it's very important in this, this narrative to think of presidents as these omnipotent figures. And that's why we get so excited about presidential races and the personalities and, uh, you know, the, 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 the spouses and the kids and, you know, all this stuff that, that doesn't really matter at all. Uh, it, it, it distracts us and it, it excites us and it exhausts us and there really isn't any of the discussion of these kinds of problems that you're raising when you talk about it being a national security state. So then one has to wonder why Bush so desperately wanted the trapping, all of the trappings of the White House to be president when, I mean, arguably he had more power than Reagan to begin with. Uh, well, maybe. I mean, I, I, he's not, I don't think he was a really deep fellow. I don't think he was a, either a great intellectual or somebody who, uh, you know, I don't know the extent to which he was, uh, you know, if you look, if you compare him to, let's say, a Cheney or some of Cheney's top people or someone like a Rumsfeld, you know, these were people who really deeply loved these kind of machinations. I think Bush loved the machinations, but on a very superficial level. He loved engineering, uh, getting people together on a date and getting them married. You know, he, he probably loved some parts of the cloak and dagger that he thought were, you know, fun. But he was this kind of, in, the, in this way, his public image was correct. He was this kind of gee whiz golly guy. He was not, a, uh, he was not somebody with a tremendous attention span or, or, or interest in details. And I think in that sense, he probably did prefer uh, to, you know, attend the meetings and, and have the trappings and, and so forth and, and enjoy that and, and leave a lot of the detail to others. So Bush finally gets his chance in uh, in 88, running against a pretty weak Democrat uh, nominee in Michael Dukakis. Actually, there were uh, a, a series of weak uh, Democratic nominees uh, during several presidential cycles. But, I mean, had had Bush 
had he not the Reagan economic record to run on uh, and was not facing such a weak opponent, do you think he would have stood a chance of winning? Uh, I don't, but you also need to know that uh, Gary Hart, who was uh, a formidable uh, opponent, would have been a formidable opponent, yes. were it not for a scandal that emerged. And uh, this is something I, I'm trying to remember. I think I've written about this a bit uh, on our website, whowhatwhy.org. Uh, you could type in Gary Hart there. Um, I found in studying these things that knock out candidates, uh, Gary Hart, John Edwards, and so on, mostly Democrats, mostly moderately liberal some of them with a kind of a strong populist thing. In the case of particularly Gary Hart, worked uh, in the Senate on uh, intelligence effort, efforts to rein in the intelligence community. He was very interested in the Kennedy assassination. These people were the victims of, of character assassination, and, and my research shows the high probability that these things were engineered. Now, people say, oh, come on, Gary Hart was a philander. Well, that is is neither here nor there. The issue is that what the way covert operations work is they target people realistically, not unrealistically. So if you want to take down uh, uh, Governor Elliot Spitzer, who I think also was taken down in a targeted operation, you study their weaknesses and you go for those weaknesses. And if you've got something, if you know that if you dangle something at them, they may take it, that's what you do. You set the thing up. You've got the cameras there. You've got everything ready to go, and it's done. And my research on Gary Hart shows that that was done. It also shows that the person who was not orchestrating it, who was around Gary Hart, actually turns out to have been connected back to George H.W. Bush. And I believe that that may have been an operation that Bush put in motion to take out somebody who was likely to beat him. <laughs> well, not so golly gee whiz after all, is he? <laughs> <laughs> yes, not. And not in, the, not in these cases. No, he played hardball. Uh, wow. The Gulf War. Uh, it has been long uh, rumored. In fact, I think, you know, there, there have been some uh, I'm, I'm thinking of people like Sherman H. Skolnick who who covered uh, some some proceedings in the courts in Chicago that seemed to link Saddam Hussein and George H. Bush as business partners that they were involved in I don't know whether whether it was some sort of a shakedown operation in the Middle East Saddam Hussein was kind of the strong man um, and, and and so that the Gulf War was framed as basically a feud between, you know, two ex-business partners. How do you see it? Well, I, I you know, there, there may be something to that. I don't know. I would say, though, that if you look at that pattern, look at Noriega uh, with Panama, where he was, again, a business partner, at least if not a Bush of the uh, of the CIA. And, and, you know, people don't remember Saddam Hussein was a low-level military officer who was encouraged in in his coup to come to power by the CIA. I mean, they provided him with, I'm trying to remember the details, I believe they provided him with an apartment and a salary. And, you know, so, so these were in many ways their creations and they owned these people. And then 
essentially they got too big for their britches and it was time for them to go. Uh, that's the pattern. And that's the same pattern we're talking about in the United States with Richard Nixon and with some of these others that, uh, you know, as long as you, uh, you follow uh, what you're supposed to do, you're okay. But at some point, that's a problem. I mean, I, I would look at Assad in Syria and ask the same question. I mean, this man and his father were allowed to operate as, you know, of course, they were, uh, they were police states and they were butchers and so forth. Uh, but, I mean, the U.S., you, okay, they weren't close with the Assads, but they, they did business with them. Uh, and they certainly allowed them to stay in power until some, some switch was, was flipped. Right, right. Same with uh, Gaddafi in, in Libya. Exactly. Yeah, well, with Qaddafi, it's very interesting. And again, I, I would refer you to our website, whowhatwhy.org, because when the all the uh, events began in Libya, I believe we were the only, uh, if you want to say, you know, serious uh, news organization to regularly ask questions about that. And our investigations, our digging showed that that, that whole scenario in which they were able to get rid of him was cooked up, that this... Uh, the the events that began happening most people don't even remember what it was but there was a there was there was some unrest in Libya and it happened in one particular place in Benghazi and as far as the evidence shows that was a that was a covert operation concocted by external intelligence agencies it was time for him to go and when you look at what he did uh, he was a fellow who actually was trying desperately over the years both to be in an independent leader in the Middle East but also to try to get into the good graces of the United States and the West, and he tried desperately to do that. Uh, the the Lockerbie bombing, which was hung on him, and there are some serious doubts as to whether it was really uh, him behind that. And in fact, there's some uh, both families and lawyers and others who believe that that uh, that Libya was framed in that. Uh, but in any case, uh, he agreed, even though he said we had nothing to do with this, he agreed uh, to really extortion that he had to pay a huge fine to, um, uh, to uh, get out from un- under the sanctions. And he was gradually being welcomed back into the, uh, into the uh, community of nations so they could do business and he, he could survive. But then there were other issues, and he uh, angered some Western oil companies. And as best as I could tell, that's the moment where they said, okay, uh, this guy has got to go. He, he, uh, they, they, the Western oil companies and also some financial concerns, they had uh, uh, convinced him to turn over the sovereign wealth fund of, of Libya uh, to, to Goldman Sachs. And Goldman Sachs said, oh, you're going to make, there's no risk, and you make a lot of money. And as, as I recall, I may get the figures wrong, they lost 92% of his money. And when, that was the money of the Libyan people. And so, of course, he was hysterical. Uh, and and uh, the, he actually detained a couple of these Goldman Sachs people as they were trying to leave the country. Uh, and, you know, there was a decision, you know, and then they, they, they had also tried to convince him uh, that he should uh, buy half of Goldman Sachs when um, when the U.S. economy went sour. I mean, there's this amazing stuff going on. This is the backdrop to a story, a, a fiction, a fairy tale that the American and, and, and international media put out, which was simply that Gaddafi suddenly became a bad guy and he was committing human rights violations and he had to go. It was, it was no context. A lot of it was made up, uh, but they bought it hook, line, and sinker. That's what the public was told, and that was the end. 
in in ninety two. Uh, now, now Bush finds himself up against a formidable opponent, and uh, obviously didn't have the charisma or the uh, the charm or anything. But why couldn't he have pulled a Gary Hart on Bill Clinton? I, did he try? Was that was that the Bush machine uh, dredging up all of these uh, you know affairs and so forth? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, especially since there were so many skeletons in, in Clinton's closet. Um, I don't know the story there. I mean, uh, some people believe that Bill Clinton, as governor of Arkansas, looked the other way uh, when Arkansas, Mena, Arkansas, the, the base there was being used for the moving of uh, drugs and uh, other contraband. Um, you know, there there may have been, I don't know, I mean, I, I assume Bush wanted to beat him, but uh, it's very strange that uh, shortly thereafter, the Bushes and the Clintons became such fabulous friends. Uh, and you may know about this, that they, to this day, they consider themselves, uh, Bush used to say that, uh, Clinton used to say that, uh, or that they, uh, George W. Bush said that his father considered Clinton like a, like a second son. I mean, that's most unusual. Yes, yes. Well, maybe that is the continuity of government, uh, the way that it really works, is the Republicans, maybe Bush said, you know what, after four years, I've had enough. Uh, I fulfilled my lifelong dream, I, but we got we have to go through the motion and, and pretend like we're giving the American people some choice. Here, Bill, you take it from here. It's hard to know whether whether someone's ego would actually allow that. I mean, my guess would be that he he tried to win. You also have to remember that he was in trouble because of that. Read my lips. Yes. No new taxes. I mean, he he just may have just been mortally wounded, and they may have just told him, "Look, there really isn't anything you can do." And um, Again, yeah, there probably were some scandals around uh, Clinton, but, you know, they also had some opposition research on Bush, and maybe they had to call a truce. We'll uh, pick this up at, at some future point down the road, and we can talk about um, the rest of the uh, the Bushies and the Bush dynasty. But just uh, one final note, and that has to do with the media fawning over uh, the president when he when he passed away. Uh I just I just found that absolutely uh, amazing, given the uh, the way that they treated him when he was in office. What was that all about? Well, yeah, that that's just amazing. Well, first of all, there's some notion that generally when a president dies, it's kind of akin to being, uh, you know, our king. And therefore, we have to not really say anything bad about them. There, obviously, it's hypocritical for the media to do that because our job is to level with the public and not be sanctimonious or, uh, or uh, in any way uh, uh, falsely uh, lavishing of excessive praise on somebody, whether they're alive or dead sentimental, mawkish, uh, you know, but that's what they did. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, actually the Bushes are brilliant at, at massaging the media. Uh, George W. Bush 
they, because he had a likable personality, he was very gifted at that, he was able to soften even the criticism of him uh, because people just liked him personally. And then, of course, uh, they are so good at, at, at getting people into these things. And the daughter, uh, Jenna Bush, uh, got a job on the Today Show. Um, and so there she is. Uh, and to this day, they have these ridiculous episodes about she fondly remembers her grandpa. You know, I mean, they claim these shows have something to do with news. Well, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, but, but there they are, you know. And so uh, they just abdicated. Uh, they just said, what the heck, let's just. Also, this is an important factor. The media were so angry at Donald Trump and the Bush family had made it known. And, of course, Trump had insulted the Bush family and Jeb Bush. They, uh, they, uh, there was this, uh, the Bushes now had joined the, the decent folks, supposedly, and so they wanted to make a point that by comparison with Trump, who they see as beyond the pale, the Bushes really were kind of decent in certain right. ways, and that was what they were going to put out there. So any enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> yeah, basically. All right. Once again, um, how do we get a copy of Family of Secrets, the Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years? Okay. Family of Secrets. Uh, if you forget anything else, you can just familyofsecrets.com is an old website I've got up there that can direct you to get it. But uh, all the big, you know, I guess Amazon runs the world now. They have it. Uh, it's a hardcover, paperback, ebook. Uh, a great audio book with a terrific narrator. That's a fun one. Uh, so you can get it that way. And uh, also I uh, run my, my day job, you might say, and my night job is running the news organization I founded, who, what, why. Org, and you can sign up for our newsletters there. we got uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook. You can also follow me personally, Real Russ Baker on Twitter and uh, Russ Baker on Facebook. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from folks if you've got story ideas. And also, uh, not to make too much of a plug, but we are entirely supported by uh, donations from the public. We don't accept any advertising or any sort of corporate money. WhoWhatWhy.org. Russ Baker, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll come back and share a few details about an upcoming episode. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me, and all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet patreon.com forward slash strange planet coming up next time Forrest Moretti is not a scientist he's not a doctor but he has done some in-depth historical research and uncovered some startling facts about the development of vaccines and the onset of the autism epidemic. In 1932, that was sort of a fateful year, I talk about in the book quite a bit, um, they add aluminum 
to this vaccine in America, and they have nationwide diphtheria campaigns running across the country. It's the first time uh, corporate America had ever gotten behind a real big medical effort. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of money behind this and a lot of doctors behind it. And they said, okay, we have a new diphtheria shot. It will protect your child. And it's got a new ingredient that you're going to love. It's aluminum precipitated, which means it has this aluminum compound in it. And we hope that it makes it work really good. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.